portion of the 8th verse in the 18th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man is come, shall he find faith on the earth? Or if you prefer it, a better translation would be this. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find the faith, the faith, on the earth? Now, we are still pursuing the same theme that has been occupying us for a number of Sunday evenings. And that is the whole theme of life as it is in this world at this very moment. That is the theme which all of us surely who think at all must be very concerned about in days like these. Why is the world as it is? How can we live in such a world? What hope is there for us in such a world? Now the Bible is a book which comes to us offering us an answer to those very questions. And we've been looking at this problem. We have seen that there are some who just refuse to face it altogether. They still go on with a giddy round, without any real thought, a kind of contracting out of life. Others believe that they can deal with this problem in terms of wisdom, understanding, knowledge, thought. Others rely upon power, physical and other powers, and others upon wealth and the power of wealth. But we've seen that these lead nowhere. And then we've been trying to point out this, that the supreme tragedy of the world at this hour is, is just this, that while man is thus perplexed and bewildered and knows not what to do nor where to turn, there is offering itself to him the whole time, everything that he needs, a solution to his problems, an answer to his questions. And it is what is to be found in this book, which we call the Bible. And here then is the question, why is it that man in his desperation, his tragic desperation at this hour, refuses to consider this message? Now, we've been giving various answers to that question. We've seen that some of them are almost constitutional, as it were. It's man's pride. Pride in his knowledge in particular. It's his depravity. His failure to appreciate the holy life to which God calls us. But we've also seen that there are other reasons. We were looking at one last Sunday night. And that is the idea that the Bible obviously can't help us because it's such an old book. It's out of date. Something that was all right perhaps in times past, but obviously in view of the advance and the development of men and the world in so many different respects. Obviously something therefore which cannot possibly help us at this present time. So without reading it, without knowing what it tells us, they just dismiss it because of its age, its antiquity. And we tried to show the complete error that is involved in that attitude. Well, now tonight, I want to take this matter a stage further. For the, there are many other reasons why people today will not believe this book and submit themselves to its message. And the particular reason I want to consider with you tonight is this. The feeling that there is no purpose in considering this because this has already failed. Now here's a very common and popular and well-known modern attitude towards Christianity. They say, why, why consider Christianity? Christianity's already been tried and found wanting. 
Now, I came across a very perfect statement of this attitude the other day in a letter to a, in a paper which was published. I don't trouble you with the name of the writer. He bears a very well-known name in the realm of science and of learning and of knowledge. The name doesn't matter. It's the attitude represented that matters. And here is a very typical statement. One might comment, says this writer, that 1,960 years of Christianity and centuries more of all kinds of other religions of equal validity to their believers seem to have brought us to a pretty pass. Now you see the statement. One might comment, he says, that 1,960 years of Christianity and these other religions seem to have brought us to a pretty pass. What he means is this. This is where Christianity has landed us. Christianity has been controlling the minds of men, he says, for nearly 1960, 1960 years. But see where it's landed us. See where it's brought us. It's brought us to a pretty pass. Now, this is a very common attitude. People say, Christianity has been preached now for nearly 2,000 years, but look at your world. So much for your Christianity. It's had a great opportunity. There was a time when everybody looked to the church and believed her message. If ever a teaching has had a chance in this world, they say it is Christianity. For 1960 years it's had this opportunity. But look at the world. Christianity, they say, has been tried and it has been found wanting. And therefore they have decided to have nothing further to do with it. They say there's no hope there. This is a proved and a patent failure. And therefore they say, we must turn in other directions if we are to find salvation and a solution to our problems. We must turn to the philosophers, to the thinkers. We must use our brains, our reasons, give up this which has been the dope of the people. Let's start thinking and working these things out and see if we cannot save our world. Now there, I think you must agree, is an extremely common attitude. There are large numbers of people tonight who won't even consider this for the reason which I'm giving, namely that they say that it has already been tried and has been found wanting. Well, now I'm not here tonight to defend Christianity. There's no need to do that. I'm here to proclaim it. And I'm here to try to show the tragic blindness that makes people talk and think in that way. For I persist in saying this, that this is the supreme tragedy of the hour. That here is the only hope that is left, nothing else. Everything else has been exploded. Here is the only hope. And yet, I say, men won't even consider it. They won't look at it. They don't trouble to make themselves familiar even with its statements and its arguments. Because of these initial tragic fallacies with regard to what Christianity really is. Now this is something which is almost incredible. But it is nevertheless the truth. There is this fatal fundamental misunderstanding as to what the Christian faith is. Now if we hadn't got a Bible, if we hadn't a book like this which people can read, well I'd understand misconceptions with regard to it, but what is astonishing is that though we've got an open Bible in a language that we can understand, people still are guilty of these basic and fundamental misconceptions. 
and not uh, Tom, Dick and Harry, but uh, intellectual people, learned people, scientific people, people who have got good minds. But when they come to this, they thus go hopelessly and tragically astray. Well, now, this, of course, is something which, uh, as I say, on the surface surprises us, but it shouldn't surprise and doesn't surprise anybody who really knows the Bible. The Bible tells us itself that that's been happening to it from the very beginning. When the Son of God was in this world, he was completely misunderstood. And by the princes of this world, don't forget that. Not the common people. It was the authorities who killed him. It was the princes who were most opposed to him. There's nothing new about this. But this, you see, is a confirmation of the Bible's own teaching. That sin is something that blinds a man. Blinds his intellect and his understanding. So that his mind and intellect, which are so good in other realms and departments, when he comes here, becomes a hindrance rather than a help, and stands between him and a realization of the truth of this message. Well, now then, let's consider this together. Let's take this particular difficulty, this particular attitude, with regard to the Bible and its message, represented so perfectly in that letter to the press which I've just quoted to you. Take this whole case which says, Christianity, not interested, because Christianity has already been tried and has been found wanting. Now, I want to consider that with you, and particularly in the light of this statement of our Lord Jesus Christ himself. You notice that uh, in the reading at the beginning, from the 20th verse of the 17th chapter, right through to this end of the 8th verse in the 18th chapter, our Lord has been giving a preview of human history. He has been talking not only about his own coming death, but about the end of the world, the end of the age. He gives a preview, and you notice the character of his preview. Well, now then, I want to discuss this rejection of Christianity uh, because it's felt that it has completely failed in the light of our Lord's own teaching with regard to his faith in this world and what's likely to happen to it towards the end of the age. Very well, let me put it to you in two main propositions. This uh, modern rejection of the Christian faith and message, because it's claimed that it's already failed, is in the first place completely wrong with regard even to its facts. We take it purely as a matter of fact. Now, it's essential we should do this. Let me say again, I'm not here to defend Christianity. There are people who are dull enough to say, Oh, you preachers, of course, you've got to defend your Christianity. You lose your jobs. If you don't, you've got to keep your churches open. I assure you, my dear friends, that that doesn't enter into my mind. It doesn't come into this whole matter. You know, I'm almost getting to an age at which if I were in any other occupation, I'd be retiring now. I go on for one reason only, and that is that this is the message of God. It's the only hope for you as an individual this evening. I'm not here to defend Christianity, but I am here to try to open your eyes, to make you think, and to realize the desperate condition that you're in if you don't believe this message. It is, if I may say so with humility, my compassion for men and women who are blinded by the devil in this way to the truth of the gospel that urges me to put this matter before you. And therefore I want to take up the very statement of fact you see, it's a statement of fact, this. Christianity, he says, has been tried and has been found wanting. Now, I say he's wrong with regard to the facts. What do I mean? Well, I mean this. Christianity 
has not brought us to this pretty pass. I agree with him that we are brought to a pretty pass. The world as it is tonight is the pretty pass to which he refers, and there we are in entire agreement. But he says, you see, that it's Christianity who has brought us to this. In other words, the international tension tonight is due to Christianity. The bombs are being made. War is being prepared for because of Christianity. Christianity has brought us to a pretty pass. You see the argument? Now I, I am disputing the facts. And I want to assert this. That far from saying that Christianity has brought us to this pretty pass, the fact is the exact opposite. The exact opposite. Let's look at it like this. Why are things as they are in the world tonight? That's the question. What has brought us to this pretty pass? And I assert that there is only one answer. It is because the human race has failed to listen to and to practice the message of Christianity. It is indeed the exact opposite. It isn't Christianity that's brought us here. It is the refusal of men and women to listen to it, to practice it, to live by it, and to pin their utter faith to it. Now, you see, that is the case put forward by the Bible from the very beginning. Its whole argument is this. That all troubles in life stem and come out of this one initial trouble. Man's refusal to live according to God's way of life. That is the whole message of the Bible, which it illustrates so endlessly in the Old Testament and in the New now, take this whole story of the Old Testament, of this one nation, the children of Israel, the Jews. The book is mainly devoted, as you remember, to their history. And what a history it is. What a checkered history. What a history of ups and downs. What a history of brilliant successes, dismal, hopeless, tragic failures. Here it's set before us. God has set up these people as a kind of object lesson for the whole of the human race. What's he teaching us through them? Well, there's only one big lesson taught right away from beginning to end in the Old Testament, and it's this. That all man's troubles come upon him, whether he's an individual or a nation, because of his departure from God. Look at those children of Israel. When they served God and worshipped him and kept his laws, how successful they were, how happy they were. The moment they turned their backs on God and began to worship idols and to imitate the other nations... Troubles come upon them in every respect, political, military, every conceivable respect. Then they realize their error and their mistake, and they turn back to God and repent and ask him to bless them and pledge themselves anew. And again everything goes well. Then like fools, they go back again and turn away from God and all their troubles come back upon them. Now, that's the thing that you get repeated endlessly. I nearly said tirelessly in the Old Testament, but thank God that it is repeated as it is. It's done for our instruction and for our learning. Now, this is the whole message. Man has been made by God and for God. And he's been made in such a way that he can only function truly and happily as long as he's obeying the laws of his own being. God has put them into him. He's meant for God. He's meant to live a life with God and in correspondence with God and as long as he obeys those laws, all goes well with him. But the moment he breaks them, everything begins to go wrong. That's the whole message, I say, of this book from the very beginning to the very end. 
So I can make this assertion. If only everybody in the world tonight began to live life according to the teaching of the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount, if only everybody in the world tonight began to live, in other words, the message of Christianity, if only people allowed themselves to be led by Christianity, do you know what would happen? Well, there'd be no problem about these bombs. There'd be no threat of war. There'd be no international tension. And most of our social and moral and ethical problems would immediately vanish and disappear. Now, that is nothing but a simple statement of fact. If we all only lived according to this and practiced it, then I say the major problems would automatically be removed. In other words, my argument is this. That it is the failure of men to practice Christianity that has brought the world to this pretty pass. And that if only they did practice pretty Christianity, the whole position would be different. But alas, men persist in rebelling. He persists in sinning. He persists in going his own way. He turns his back upon God. He doesn't want to listen to the Bible. He dismisses the Bible and curses it. It's no use to him. It's an old book. It's folklore. He doesn't believe in it as a word of God. He's a word of man. And in any case, it's been a nuisance and a drag upon the forward march of the human race. That's man's attitude. He's thrown it overboard. He doesn't know its contents. isn't interested in it at all. And he's been living life in his own manner. That's the cause of the trouble. And it's quite inevitable. Because man is breaking the law of his own nature. Not only that, he puts himself in under God's displeasure. God punishes men for rebelling. He's always said so, and he does so. And hence, the reason why the world is as it is this evening. Now, there I'm dealing purely with questions of fact. The fact is, I say, that it is because men has refused Christianity and the Christian way of life that the world is as it is. Now, this is not only true as a general proposition. Don't you see that even taking the last 160 years or so, it is this very thing that has been most prolific as a cause of all our troubles and problems. Now, I don't want to spend too much time with this, but there are thoughtful people in this congregation. There are thoughtful people in the world. And these are the people who are refusing to consider Christianity. See where it's brought us. Look at the past to which it's brought us. Now then, I want to put certain points to you. The great trouble about 160 years ago was caused mainly by the aggressive attitude of the French, who in their French Revolution had become atheistical. They'd finished with Christianity and had set up an atheistical state. And it immediately led to that aggression when there was a threat that the whole world might be conquered by Napoleon and be under the foot of his tyranny. Now that was done in the name of atheism. Misunderstanding of Christianity caused them to do that. And you see the trouble and the menace to which that led. But come, let's get a little bit nearer to our own day and time and generation. What do you think was the main cause of the First World War from 1914 to 1918? Well, it seems to me that there's no difficulty about answering that question. What was it that made Germany become an aggressor in 1914? There's no difficulty about this. Most of the historians are agreed about it. 
It was the direct outcome of the teaching of their philosophers, especially a man called Nietzsche and others. These preached a philosophy of the superman and a kind of super race. It was a blank contradiction of Christianity. Nietzsche had no use for Christianity. He abominated it. He hated it. He reviled it. And he set up this other philosophy. It's a philosophy of force, a philosophy of power. And it led to the First World War. There's no question about it. That was the whole mentality of the German nation and their leader, the Kaiser, but particularly the nation, even more than their leader. It was this whole philosophy of power and of this master race. Well, I needn't tell you nor remind you of the cause of the Second World War. It was what was called Hitlerism, Nazism, fascism, call it what you will. What's that? It's nothing again but the same sort of godlessness. It's something that throws the Bible and its teaching overboard. It was anti-Jew, apart from anything else, but still more anti-God, anti-Christ. The worship of power, the worship of brute force, the worship of a master race, the worship of blood, a particular kind of blood in men, this Aryan blood. Can't you see? What's brought us to this pretty pass is the denial of Christianity and the substitution for it of a human philosophy. And what's the main cause of the tension this evening? What's the main cause of the tension? I'm not saying that this country nor any other country is guiltless. I don't believe that for a moment. I'm not here to defend the Western nations, but I am here to say this, that the greatest cause of trouble in this world tonight is atheistical communism. It is this whole theory that does away with the Bible, with Christianity and its message, and trusts to this brute force and power. This is, at this moment, the greatest cause of our trouble. Now, my friends, I've been dealing with facts. We are told that Christianity has brought us to this pretty past. Has it? Isn't the lesson of history perfectly plain and clear? What brings us to such a pass as this is the rejection of Christianity. Is the refusal to submit to it, to believe it, and to practice it. It's the exact opposite. Indeed, let me end this section by quoting to you those famous words of the late G.K. Chesterton. He said, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. Christianity has been found difficult and not tried. And that is nothing but the simple, bare truth. It's never been tried. Men have found it too difficult. Its demands are too high and too exalted. They've never given it an opportunity. They've tried everything else. And yet in their failure, like cats, they turn round and blame the Christianity that they've never tried. The facts are wrong. But wait a moment. That's only the first part of my answer with regard to these facts. I make the assertion. Christianity has not brought us to this pretty path. But let me put this to you. Consider what Christianity has done. It hasn't done that. What has it done? This Christianity which is dismissed because it's such a complete failure, what has it done? Well, read your New Testament to start with. What do you find? Well, you find this. Christianity has been the most civilizing and uplifting force that this world has ever known. Look at this phrase that you get in these Gospels. The common people heard him gladly. They'd never heard anybody else gladly. The common people, you know, didn't get much from Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. They couldn't follow them. 
You can't follow the great philosophers without knowing their terms, without understanding something of their method, or their dialectic and their brilliant, it demands reason and understanding and knowledge in you. The common people never got anything from them. But here comes one, and the common people heard him gladly. Most of the first Christians, let me remind you, were slaves, soldiers, servants. The underdog, the common people. Here is the thing above everything else in this world that has raised the common people. Here is a message that has opened the minds and the understanding of people to whom the great of the world had nothing whatsoever to give. This is sure fact again. I'm not here imagining these things. I'm giving you facts which you'll find even in your secular history books. The whole course of history has been changed by the coming of Christianity. The whole history of Asia was changed by it. The history of Europe was changed by it. The coming of the Apostle Paul to Greece, the Philippi, was one of the greatest turning points in the whole of history. Things were never the same again. The becoming of the Roman Empire as a Christian power after about three centuries uh, is again one of the most notable historical events that has ever happened. This is sure fact. That's been the effect of Christianity. But what about the Middle Ages? Well, I'm just reminding you of certain facts. There may be somebody here tonight who says, I'm not going to bother about Christianity. I've come to the service just to hear what you've got to say, but I know there's nothing in it. It's failed altogether. It's useless. Now, my friend, it's important you should know something about what Christianity has done. Where have your hospitals come from? There were days, there were times when there were no such things as hospitals. And people just suffered and died like dogs. Where did your hospitals come from? They came from Christianity. The oldest hospital in London in this country is St. Bartholomew's Hospital, started by a man called Rahir in the 12th century, and he was a Christian priest. All your hospitals have come from this despised, rejected Christianity, which is such a failure that it only leads us to this pretty pass. But where have your schools come from? Where has the educational system come from? Who began to teach the poor people? The answer is still the same. It was the Christian church. You see, our Lord, when he was here in the days of his flesh, he went about doing good. He healed diseases. He taught the people, taught the common people. And Christianity has gone on doing it ever since. When nobody else bothered about teaching the people, Christianity taught the people, taught them to read in order that they might understand this message. Oh, I mustn't keep you. Where's the poor law come from? You know, there was a time when there was no such thing as poor law relief in this country. The acts of parliament hadn't been hadn't been passed then. There was a time when nobody took any care of the poor in an official state sense at all. Who looked after the poor first? It's still the same answer. The Christian church, Christianity, cared for the poor. Men and women gave up their lives and possibilities of great wealth and advancement in order to care for the poor, for their bodies, for their minds, for their illnesses. They gave them money, they gave them food. All these charitable institutions have originated in the Christian church. Now, my friends, it's about time people began to realize that. You see, we're living in this welfare state, and we say, the state does this, that, and the other. Now, go back into your history, and remember that when there was a time when the state did nothing, and the only institution in the world that cared for the well-being of men and women was the Christianity that is despised and dismissed and derided as a failure. 
come further on. What led to the abolition of slavery, Christianity, William Wilberforce. And William Wilberforce led that movement not because he was just a member of parliament, but because he was a converted member of parliament, because he'd become a Christian. There was a time when Will William Wilberforce was not a Christian. He was a very able man, he was a member of parliament, but he spent his night dancing in the balls, going the social round of London. But suddenly his whole life was changed by the despised Christianity that never does anything and that only brings us to this pretty pass. And it was immediately and directly as the result of his conversion and his new life that he began to lead in the agitation for the abolition of slavery. Face the facts, my friend. What about your factory acts? Lord Shaftesbury, same thing again. A converted man. Not merely, he didn't do it because he was a peer of the realm. He did it because he was a converted peer of the realm. Because he believed the rejected Christianity. And I needn't keep your time in reminding you that popular education as we know it, and which was introduced in 1870, is a direct outcome of the evangelical awakenings of the 18th and the 19th centuries. And I would add to that that trade unionism has come out of Christianity. It was the Methodist class meeting and similar meetings that raised up men to understand they had certain rights. And trade unionism, which today is so often a rejecter of Christianity and holds its meetings on the Sunday breaking God's day, came out of this despised and rejected Christianity. Well, now, these are just facts. That is what Christianity has actually done. I sum it all up by putting it like this. That the most liberating, the most civilizing, the most uplifting work that this world has ever known has always been done by Christianity, by this message, by the Christian church. And therefore, you see, I start by saying that a friend who writes like that to a paper is completely and entirely wrong with regard to his facts. Christianity hasn't done what he thinks it's done, but it has done a great deal that he seems to know nothing about. He's doubly wrong. But come to my second point. This attitude is completely wrong in its idea as to what Christianity proposes to do. Don't you see that implicit in his argument? He says, I'm not going to consider Christianity. What's it done? Look at its failure. Look at the state of the world tonight. That's what your Christianity has done for the world. You see, he's entirely wrong in his idea as to what Christianity proposes to do, what it sets out to do, what it claims to do. Now, this is the most serious thing of all. It is obviously because he is wrong at this point that he is wrong on his facts. Having an entirely wrong notion as to what Christianity sets out to do, well then, of course, he obviously must come to the conclusion that it's failed. Therefore, it is necessary that I should put this plainly and clearly once more. Let me therefore put it first negatively. What is it that Christianity has never promised to do? Now, I've got to start with a negative. There are certain things which this message has never promised to do. What are they? Well, here are some of them. It has never promised to do what these critics of it think that it has promised to do. Christianity has never promised to improve and to reform this world. Never. I defy you to give me a single statement in this New Testament which indicates that 
Christianity has never promised to make this world a better place. Never. Did you realize that, my friend? It has never said that it's going to reform the world and improve the world by its teaching. It has never promised to educate men up to decent living. It has never offered itself as a moral, nor an ethical, nor a political system. Never. There's not a word to that effect in the whole of the Bible. Let me go further. Christianity has never promised to abolish war. Now, we're living in days when we've got to put these things very plainly. You see, this man writes to the paper because he says, look at the war. Here we are, preparing for war, ready to use the bombs. The end, the world's going to be blown up. Christianity has brought us to this. Christianity has failed to stop us coming to this. That's his argument. Well, now, my reply is that Christianity has never promised to do that. What, says somebody, but this is inconceivable. I thought that Christianity was this noble idealistic message which teaches men to love one another and to shake hands instead of hitting one another, to banish all their bombs and all their armaments and we all live in peace together. Christianity surely is here to put an end to war. My friend, there is not a single word in the whole of the New Testament to that effect. Not one. It has never promised to abolish war and dispute. No, that's the fallacy. You see, these people think that that's the message of Christianity. They think that it's a civilizing uh, uh, movement from their standpoint, which by educating people and training them and teaching them is going to make each generation better than the previous one. Each generation starts with the last let left off, and you go on and on and up and up, and obviously if that is true, well, then you would expect that after 2,000 years of it, the world ought to be a very much better place than it is. That's their difficulty, you see. They think that that is Christianity. That is a great teaching which men have got to apply. And then you go up and you up and up and you advance and develop and at last you arrive in the 20th century when war has been entirely abolished by Christianity and the whole world is living happily. But that, I say, is the complete fallacy. It has never claimed to do any one of those things. Now, that's why I've read this passage to you from the Gospel according to St. Luke tonight. I could have read equally well the 21st chapter of Luke's Gospel. I could have read equally well the 13th chapter of Mark or the 24th chapter and the 25th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Matthew. The thing is fantastic. It's ridiculous. Our Lord many times gave a preview of history. What did he say? Did he say, now go out and preach this gospel, educate this first generation. Then the second generation will start where this one left off, and it will go on progressively until the whole world of men will become perfect. Do you know he said the exact opposite? This is what he said. As it was in the days of Noah, even so shall it be. At the end of the age, as it was in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, even so shall it be in the days of the Son of Man. He doesn't offer any improvement. He says, you know, in those times, those terrible periods, before the flood and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, people were godless, turned their backs on God. What were they doing? Eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, buying and selling, having their fill of pleasure, making money, having a wonderfully good time and knew not until the flood came and swept them all away, even so shall it be. That's his picture of the end. He never said the world is going to get better and better. 
He never said this teaching was going to banish war. He said there shall be wars and rumors of wars. There shall be earthquakes and pestilences, men rising up against one another, greed and envy and avarice. The world is going to be a kind of hell. Finally, he puts this question. When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find the faith on the earth? This picture is not one of a developing, progressing Christianity, growing and growing and gaining larger numbers of adherents. He says, when I come back at the end, shall I be able to see any evidence of the faith at all? You see, it's the exact opposite of this view. This message has never claimed these things. It has warned us of the exact opposite. So you mustn't blame Christianity for the conditions. Christianity has predicted them. It's prophesied. Our Lord said it's going to be like this. He's prophesied that the world would be exactly as it is tonight. And that's why no Christian should be surprised. It's never promised to make the world a perfect place. Indeed, I can turn this argument right round. What is it that has claimed that the world can become a better place? And the answer is non-Christian philosophies. It was your non-Christian philosophers of the last century who said that if you only educated men, you could abolish war. It was your non-Christian politicians who said that we no longer needed Christ and a miraculous and supernatural salvation. You could legislate by acts of parliament a perfect world. Now, I'm not, I'm not inventing facts. I'm simply repeating facts. This is what was taught. It was taught by those liberal theologians of the end of the last century and the beginning of this. They said they no longer believed in miracles. We didn't need any longer a supernatural Christ. They talked about the Jesus of history, who was a politician and a socialist and a pacifist and a teacher. And all we needed was to accept his teaching and practice it, and the world would be perfect. We could banish war. We could banish everything by our own reason and understandings and agreements. They really believed. They really did believe that war was going to be banished in this century. Christianity never believed that. Christianity has never believed that. But these non-Christian philosophers and poets and politicians, they really did believe it. They taught that as men became better educated, H.G. Wells and people like that, this was their very teaching, as men became more knowledgeable, they'd reason more, they'd think more, they wouldn't hit one another, they'd say, now let's have a discussion, let's settle this matter. They'd banish all their armaments, destroy all their guns, our swords would be turned into plowshares, and we'd all be meeting in international conferences, we'd sign agreements, we'd shake hands, never another war. Indeed, it was said of the First World War that this was the war to end war. And people believed that, because we were educated, we were advancing. That's the teaching that has promised to banish war and to make a perfect world. They are the people who promised that, and they are the people who have let us down. But Christianity has never promised that. That's never been a part of its program. There is not a scintilla of evidence in the whole of the Bible to teach any such doctrine. Christianity has never promised to do things like that. So she mustn't be charged with failure when she hasn't done things like that. The facts are that she has said that these things cannot be done while man is a sinner and the world is under the power and the control of the devil. This is the one message that has always said that. That's why I'm not a bit surprised at the state of the world tonight. Indeed, I'm amazed that it's as good as it is. 
Knowing the evil and the sin that are in the heart of men. Christianity never could make such a promise. It's the exact opposite of all it teaches. But come, let me put it positively. That is what Christianity hasn't promised to do. What has Christianity promised to do? Well, it's quite clear. This is its message. Let me summarize it for you as I close. What does this book say? Well, it tells us that God has got a great plan for this world. And that God has already put that plan into operation. That it has been carried out in the past. That it is being carried out in the present. And that it is going to be carried out in the future. God, it says, has got a plan for this world. It is his world. He made it. He still owns it. He hasn't abandoned it. Bad, evil though it is, God hasn't finished with it. God has got a plan for this world, and he's going to carry it out. It is a plan that he puts into operation chiefly through the person of his only begotten Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's at the center of this book. The whole of the Old Testament's preparing for him. The New Gospel, New Testament Gospels hold him before us. He came when the fullness of times had arrived. He arrived. The Word was made flesh. The incarnation took place. Here he is, living, teaching, dying on a cross, buried, rising, entering into heaven again. This is the plan. It's all in this blessed person. God's plan for the world. What is it? Now then, what does Jesus Christ come into the world to do? What is the object of his entering into time and his taking upon him human nature and living as a man and in the likeness of sinful flesh? Why did he die that death on the cross? Why did he rise in the glorious resurrection? What's he doing now? What's the program? It's quite clear. It's this. He came primarily to deal with us as individuals and to save us out of this lost world. This is how he put it. The Son of Man, he said, is come to seek and to save that which is lost. What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about individuals. He always talked about individuals. You see, it's the critics who talk about Christianity. They're always talking about Christianity. Something objective. Something which is going to deal with world conditions, social conditions, condition of nations. So a man writes his pompous letter to a newspaper and says Christianity has brought us to a pretty pass. Can't you see the fallacy? He's thinking of everything outside himself. Christianity ought to have abolished war. Christianity ought to make these bombs impossible. Christianity ought to make the world a better place. And he doesn't say a word about himself. Doesn't seem to think or to realize that he's got any problems in his own life. Christianity is something that's putting things right in general. Nothing about himself and his own soul and his own way of life and his own failure and his own misery, his own personal problem. Doesn't raise that. Now that is the whole fallacy, you see. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who operates the plan of God, doesn't want you to start considering wars or nations. He wants you to start considering yourself, my friend. You. You see, your problem and mine is not what are the nations doing, and how can't things be put right? Your problem and mine is, what's the matter with me? How am I getting on? 
Why do the nations behave as they do? I'll tell you. Because nations consist of numbers of individuals. And it's because all the individuals are like you and like me that the nations behave as they do. It's a personal problem. Our Lord, the Son of God, was always dealing with individuals. You. You are life, woman of Samaria, living in adultery. Yeah, that's the sort of person he came to deal with, publicans and sinners. He wasn't making great general statements about general conditions or the international relationships. He was interested in a poor, miserable publican, in a poor prostitute washing his feet with her tears and wiping them with the hair of her head. Oh, he'd come for individuals and dying on the cross. He talks about an individual thief and he talks to him. That's what Christianity is interested in. And you see, its message to you and to me tonight is this. That though this whole world is lost and is condemned and is going to be destroyed and punished, you and I can be saved and delivered out of it. That's the plan of God. God is gathering individuals out of this mass of humanity. The message is that whatever may happen to the world, that you and I, as living beings and souls, can be put right. And Christ came to save me, the Son of God who loved me, says Paul, and who gave himself for me. Ah, but you say that's being selfish. Why don't you deal with world conditions? My friend, nothing can be done about world conditions. I've already told you that. Your problem should be this. How can you escape being involved in the final cataclysm that is going to bring destruction on this world at any moment? That's your question. These atheistical philosophers who are talking so much at the present time, they're beginning to tell us that probably we haven't got another year to live. None of us. That's what one of them said last Sunday. All right, I think he's probably wrong even in that, but let's take it for granted that he's right. What's the point, therefore, of your asking me to make statements about international relationships and situations? Surely what you ought to know is this. If I've only got another year to live, if the end of the world is coming then, if the whole thing's to be blown up, what happens to me then? Where am I going? What's my destiny? Do you know anything about it? That's the message of Christianity. It's here to tell you, you see, that you've got a soul that is imperishable, that though men blow up your bodies, they can't destroy your soul, and that you stand before God in judgment, and you'll be asked, what have you done with your soul? Did you live to God's glory or did you live to yourself? Were you like the people in Sodom and Gomorrah or were you like the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the question. Did you keep the commands of God or did you spit on them and break them and laugh at them? For if you have, you'll be condemned and you're hopeless. But here is the message that God sent his son into the world to save you from that destruction and that punishment. Christ died for your sins. He took your guilt upon himself. He bore its punishment. That's why he came. He came to give his life a ransom for many. This is God's plan. The world is doomed. You and I can be saved out of it and saved for God and for eternity. What is he doing? Well, that was the main purpose. Then having delivered us from the guilt, in that way he gathers us together into the church, the visible form of his kingdom. Christ always said this. That he had come into the world not to make the world a better place, not to change the kingdom of the world, but to bring in the kingdom of heaven. You see, it's quite different. He didn't say he was going to make this old world better and better. No, no. What he said is this. I've come to start a new humanity. The kingdom of God was his preaching. He was always talking about this kingdom of God. He'd come into the world to bring in a new kingdom. 
Something absolutely new. Not the reformation of the old, but a new beginning. Something absolutely fresh. He's the head of a new humanity. He's the king of a new kingdom. And that's what he's doing. He came into the world to save people out of the old, put them into the new kingdom. That's the church. That's the kingdom of God. And it's been growing. He's been adding to it throughout the running century. This is the program of Christianity. And it will go on and on until a day will come when, as he tells us, he will come back again. And he will come back at the end in order to judge this old world in righteousness. There is to be an end of the world, my friends. Not of necessity through the atomic bomb or the hydrogen bomb, the cobalt bomb. Not of necessity in that way. I don't know. God may allow men to do that. That may be his plan. I don't know. But I do know this. That there is to be a definite end to this world. And that the end will be ushered in by the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, into this world. He will come back to judge the world, to judge everybody who's ever lived. He will come to destroy this old lost kingdom that has become the kingdom and the world of the devil. That's to be destroyed. That's to be done away with. Evil and sin are to be utterly destroyed. And all that belong to it, they go to perdition and everlasting destruction. And he will then introduce his glorious kingdom. It's an invisible kingdom now. It's a spiritual kingdom, but then it will be visible. The new Jerusalem will come down out of heaven. There will be a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. God in Christ will dwell on the earth. With whom? With all who believe this message. With all who become Christians. With all who having realized their lost sinners believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and have been admitted into the kingdom of God. That's the program. Read the Bible for yourself. That is God's plan and program for this world. I say that the program has been carried out. Read it in the Bible. The call of Abram. The formation of that nation. That was a part of it. Coming of Christ. Men and women being converted, added to the kingdom, one by one. They see the truth. They go from the world into the kingdom of God, translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. A great transformation, a great moving over. That's the adding to the kingdom. The program is going on. It is going on. It's going on now. There are people being converted day by day. They're being added to the kingdom. God's preparing his people for that world that is to come. The kingdom of God on earth. God amongst men. The glory of the everlasting and the eternal state. It's going on. And it will go on, my friends, until, as Paul puts it in the 11th chapter of the epistle to the Romans, until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in, and so all Israel shall be saved. The day of the Lord shall come. It's absolutely certain. Nothing can stop it. With God, a thousand years are but as one day and one day is as a thousand years. Listen to Paul giving us the vision of the end. Then cometh the end when he, Christ, shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he hath put all enemies under his feet. He must reign. 
Who is he? Jesus Christ. The Jesus of Nazareth that was once in this world walking its roads as a man. The risen Lord seated at the right hand of God. This is Christianity. He's there tonight. He is reigning and he will reign until all his enemies have been made his footstool. All the people who have rejected him and laughed at him. The devil and all the evil angels. All that belongs to evil and sin. He must reign. He will reign. Until all his enemies have been put under his feet. Jesus shall reign. Where'er the sun doth his successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore. Till moons shall wax and wane no more. Christianity a failure? Christianity is a mighty success. Think of the saints that have been gathered in and are now waiting. They're still being gathered in. They're yet to be gathered in. And when the end comes, look at them. Ten thousand times ten thousand in sparkling raiment white. Look at them ascending the steeps of light. Tis finished, they say. Tis finished their fight with death and sin. Fling open wide the golden gates and let the victors in. That's the program of Christianity. And it's being carried out in spite of the malignity of men, in spite of the machinations of the devil and of hell, in spite of all. He's triumphing and he'll go on until his final triumph and victory are complete. That's what it proposes to do. And the question, therefore, for you, my friend, is this. Where are you in this? Stop worrying about the bombs. You can't make any difference to that. Neither can I. That's not your problem. You shouldn't be concerned primarily with the state of the world. You should be concerned with this at this moment. Your state. Your condition. What's going to happen to you if these bombs are let off? You're not promised that the world's ever going to be put right. While man is a sinner, while he's a fool, while he's a rebel against God, there will be wars and rumors of wars. He'll bring destruction on himself. You can't evade it. You can do nothing about it. That's not your problem. Your problem is yourself. What's going to happen to you? And blessed be the name of God, that's where his program does come in. In spite of the world and in spite of hell, you can be delivered. You can be made safe. You can become a citizen of this kingdom of God that shall never fail, but will, will last throughout all eternity. You can enter into it tonight. You have nothing to do but to come to the despised Jesus. Believe his despised message. Believe that when the world laughed and roared at him in his apparent failure on the cross, believe that it was there he was triumphing most of all. It was there that he was saving you and finally defeating your last enemy, the devil and death and Hades. That's the program of Christianity. It hasn't failed, my friend. It's the only thing in the world that has succeeded and is succeeding. And it is going on to that final triumph. When he shall reign over all. And every knee shall bow to him. In heaven, in earth, even under the earth.